Alice Cooper once said, Welcome to my nightmare. I think you're gonna like it. I think you're gonna feel you belong. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about Kingdom Death Monster. What is Kingdom Death Monster? Well, Kingdom Death Monster is a boutique nightmare horror miniatures game. That was a lot of words right in a row. So let's just cut it down. What is, what's nightmare horror? Well, writer Richard Gavin described nightmare horror as any work so steeped in the uncanny and the darksome that it manages to pierce through our logical safeguards, providing us with an experience akin to our most intense nightmares. So nightmare horror is a genre of unrelenting horror, where you no longer can rely on logic or expectation to explain what's going to happen next. You can only expect that something terrible and dreadful is going to happen at every turn. It's like having Lyme disease with this experience of unrelenting dread, believing that you are going to die any minute. Kingdom Death Monster has nightmare horror oozing out of every single part of it, from every single miniature, from all of the encounters in the game, to even just the setting, the plane of faces, which is this plane of just carved faces. Nightmare Horror does also have some kind of squeaky and interesting elements to it that some of our listeners won't want to hear. I'll let you know right now, toward the end of this episode, we will be talking about some of those Orange Zone topics. And we'll let you know then if you want to skip to the more spoilerific second episode. Or if you don't want to listen to any more about Kingdom Death, you can just join us at the beginning of Season 2. So for those of you who still want to join us about Kingdom Death, what we have is this Nightmare Horrors miniature game that is essentially an RPG light miniatures combat boss rush game. Now, it's a lot of words, but I think it conveys the idea very well. It's a little combat tactical game with a board where you move miniatures around, the miniatures fight each other, and each time you're fighting several small character miniatures, with character sheets and a little bit of information about them against one main boss-type miniature that you have to defeat to win the encounter. I'm reminded a lot of the video games Monster Hunter or Shadow of the Colossus. It's just an overwhelming odd sort of thing. So let's start talking about what we actually have here. Sitting in front of us is a 22-pound box completely clad in matte black paper. It is huge. It is dark. What all comes inside of this thing? Well, it's absolutely massive. It's got over a thousand cards in it. It's got a massive rule book, which also contains several encounters from the game that you have to reference throughout parts of the game. The total of the rule book is 235 pages. There's 18 sprues of miniatures that allow you to create more than 40 highly detailed miniatures, including the seven enemy miniatures that come in the standard base game. Although the 1.5 release does, I believe, have one additional miniature, the uh, Gold Smoke Knight. The Gold Smoke Knight. I'm going to warn anyone who's interested in this game. It's $400. 
That is a prestige level game. That is a game that just owning it gives you a certain level of nerd cred. And it's not something you just want to dive into without knowing what you're getting into. So, let's talk about what this game is. Let's start at the beginning. Where does Kingdom Death Monster start? Well, the very beginning of the game puts your four unnamed survivors, which you have to name, because if you don't name them, they don't get survival, but we'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, you have these four survivors who wake up knowing nothing. They're just alive and trying to take in the world around them. They're in unrelenting darkness on an endless plane of faces with nothing but small lantern light to guide them. Suddenly, a monster appears, this great white lion with human hands, and just starts eating everybody. So these survivors don't want to die. Groping in the darkness, they find shards of stone, which they use as makeshift weapons to finally face down this horrifying lion. And that's where you start. You have four survivors clad in nothing but loincloths, wielding nothing but these pieces of rock, fighting against a monstrous lion with human hands. How does combat work in this game? Well, it's pretty simple and straightforward. You have your weapons, which give you bonuses to hit. You roll dice to try and wound an enemy. Once the enemy's hit points run out, they die. You collect treasure. It's pretty straightforward in concept. Yes, but when you attack the monster, you have to contend with its hit location deck, which decides all of the different parts of the monster you could potentially hit with your attack. These are different for every single type of monster. For the white lion, as an example, uh, you might hit its soft belly, which is a fairly vulnerable spot. You might strike its strange hand, which could have long-lasting repercussions if you hit it hard enough with a critical hit and sever its strange hand. You might hit its scapular deltoid. Oh, well, yes, that's of course where I was aiming at. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly where that is without looking it up and everything. I mean, who doesn't? But most notably, you might actually be tricked into attacking the monster where it expects you to attack it, which will trigger its trap card. When the trap card triggers, you end up reshuffling the whole hit location deck, and that's how the hit location deck gets recycled. Each time you hit, it normally goes into a discard pile until you get to that trap card, which when it triggers, reshuffles the whole hit location deck, so you once again don't know what you're hitting. All of the different cards offer different vulnerabilities, different strengths. If your luck is bad enough, you might even hit the uh, lion in its glorious mane, which has no meat parts to hurt, so you don't injure the lion at all no matter how well you hit it. Each of the hit locations have different ways of reacting. Sometimes, just attacking there, the lion will attack back. Sometimes, if you wound there, the lion will swat back at you. Sometimes, if you sneak up on it and hit it from behind, the lion will run straight away from you. All of this provides a way that the lion moves and attacks on turns that aren't its turn. So the lion is continually acting as you're trying to contend with it. But then also, once it finishes acting, it gets a turn of its own! And that's where the AI deck comes in. The AI deck is an interesting little assembly of cards drawn from different parts. There are basic attacks in there, advanced attacks, and if you're unlucky enough, 
legendary attacks. Those are for high-level monsters and the like. On its turn, you just turn over the top card of the AI deck, and it attacks. The White Lion will swat at you with its human-like hands, will chomp on you with its big liony maw. Sometimes it'll flop on its back and do that thing that cats do where it pulls all of its legs up and goes, Come on, touch my belly, touch my belly. I, I don't think it actually talks and taunts you like that, but it might. Who knows? But it does do that thing. It waits on the ground for you to come to it and try to attack it. If you don't have any ranged weapons, you gotta go attack it at some point. But the point is, all of these contribute to the lion behaving in a predictably white lion manner, but in an unpredictable manner overall. You don't know what exactly it's going to do. You're not sure, even if you knew what all the AI cards are, you're not sure which AI cards got shuffled into this particular white lion's deck. On top of that, these AI cards act as a sort of hit points. When you injure the white lion, its AI cards get moved from its AI deck to a wound deck which once it accrues all of the AI cards in the wound deck, the white lion will finally die with one final blow. And this means that the white lion behaves in a more constrained manner as it becomes more desperate when you actually start wounding it badly. So if you have an idea of what attacks haven't gone out yet and which attacks you're knocking down, you know kind of what the lion's behaviors are going to be as you start to whittle it down like that. It's an interesting mechanic that gives you an idea of how the monsters behave while still allowing them to behave in unpredictable, monstrous ways. Some of my favorite parts of this game are once you've wounded an enemy after a while, you go, okay, I know that it has the chomp left in its deck, the power swat left in its deck, and the roar left in its deck. Well, we don't really want it to roar anymore, so is there anyone that can manipulate its deck at all? No? This is still the opening encounter? Oh, this is bad. And you you roll and you try and hit, and you don't know what's getting taken out of its deck. You have to wait for the White Lion's next turn, and it turns over, and oh, you didn't take out the roar. It's just going to be roaring forever now. So, the monsters behave in unusual manners as their decks start to wear out, but all of the monsters behave in fundamentally that monster-ish ways. But after all of that, after you've hit the White Lion enough, you eventually kill it. And you get treasure. John, what type of treasure do you get from a White Lion? Well, obviously it's going to have a large treasure hoard that it keeps all its jewels and no, 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 it's a kingdom of death. You just, you just tear it apart and use its, like, body parts, which is how the survivors are going to build their settlement, which is the next part, settlement building. So, after you've destroyed this introductory white lion, you then search around in the darkness, and lo and behold, on the horizon, there's light. It's a giant pile of lanterns. It's the Lantern Horde. And more people are coming around from out of the darkness, and you decide to form together into a basic settlement. In the settlement building phase, you use the resources that you've collected to try and build new locations, and then refine those resources into new weapons, armor, and other different things. Sometimes you can build specific weapons after certain locations have become unlocked. Other times you just have to build basic bone weapons, which break if you hit anything hard, and and rawhide armor, which only provides one or two points of actual armor. Now, this phase would be, frankly, pretty boring if that's all you did in it. But there's also innovations. You get to build up the settlement. 
You get innovations, which follow kind of a rudimentary technology tree. Of course, they're mostly randomly drawn when you build innovations, so you are forced to work under certain constraints. You don't just get to select from anywhere on the technology tree you get, so maybe you end up with a choice between developing ammonia for your settlement or inner lantern, which is sort of a rudimentary religion. But the point is, you end up taking whatever you're given and trying to forge a rudimentary Paleolithic society from it. On top of that, as certain events happen throughout your timeline, as certain threshold events occur in your settlement, you might unlock society principles. The first principle you're going to unlock, almost certainly, is the principle of death, which is where your survivors decide what they do when someone dies. Now, the two choices you're given are dig them a grave, give them a nice send-off into the afterlife. Or, there's a dead body. You might be able to rip it apart and get more resources out of it. You might be able to cannibalize this body, which is pretty dark. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a gruesome implication. The second society principle that you're going to unlock, similarly, is birth, the advent of new life, and what to do when that new baby comes along. Are you going to nurture it, come together as a settlement, and treat this new life as precious and wonderful? Or are you expecting this new freeloader to start pulling their weight as soon as humanly possible and get rid of them if they don't? You know, is this going to be a nurture the young settlement or one that demands survival of the fittest? These things together make a very interesting and flavorful settlement building phase. But after a while, your resources start running thin. What do you do at that point? You go back out and you fight more monsters. At the very beginning, you only fight white lions. But after the second lantern year, which happens every now and then when a lantern just burns out of the lantern horde, Oh yeah, did we mention there's no other way of telling time in Kingdom Death? Because there's, you know, no stars, no sun, no evidence of any sort of static way of telling time. So the, the survivors every once in a while notice that one of the lanterns has gone out and call that a lantern year, however much time that is. It's enough time that a newborn survivor is ready to go hunt at the end of the lantern year, so must be a little while, right? But after the second lantern year, you can fight something other than white lions. You can fight the screaming antelope, which is an antelope that screams out of its giant distended stomach mouth, which is big enough to swallow a survivor whole. Oh my goodness, this is terrifying. Yeah, and it's got like human-like teeth, like surprisingly human teeth along the bottom of it, and little bitty hands that help push whatever is uh, is being uh, bitten into the mouth. So, yeah, the monsters in this are pretty disturbing, and I find that to be an aesthetic that really appeals to me. A very interesting thing is that when, when I first unlocked the Screaming Antelope, I thought, okay, so it's going to have a different AI deck, but I basically know how to fight a monster. I mean, you gang up right behind it, you don't get directly in front of it. That's how we defeated the White Lion, so Screaming Antelope must be pretty much the same, right? Well, the great thing about the way Kingdom Death handles its hit location deck and its AI deck is that the Screaming Antelope can behave completely different from a White Lion, whereas the White Lion is a consummate predator that's continually trying to stalk the battlefield that zeroes 
zeroes in on whoever's the biggest threat to it and the most likely to cause it harm and leaves survivors that have been nearly defeated alone to focus on ones that are truly dangerous to it, the antelope is a prey animal. It's skittish. It's frightened. It runs from you. If you're knocked down, instead of moving on to someone who's an actual threat, it sits and tramples you and tries to cause bigger problems. It knocks you around. It screams at you. It has frighteningly human eyes that make you hesitant to kill it. And if you leave it alone, if you go, okay, I'm going to attack it from range, it'll start healing itself, which is really obnoxious. After that, you get more resources. That's pretty cool. You start going along, you start developing, you start getting some pretty good weapons. And then you have a nemesis encounter, which we don't want to spoil those for you. We're going to put that into the next episode. But the biggest thing that you need to know about nemesis encounters is you don't hunt them. They hunt you. But now, as we move on, you eventually find a gigantic feather that alludes to the existence of a third quarry monster, the phoenix. Now, the phoenix obviously is a gigantic bird and therefore is going to behave in a manner different from the white lion and different from the antelope. You know this going into it, so you're kind of preparing for a different sort of battle. Now, the phoenix is probably a bird, so it's going to fly around the battlefield, right? It's going to it's going to probably use a lot of mobility and stuff. So, that's what you expect going into the fight. Now, what happens when you actually fight the Phoenix? I mean, you start assembling the deck. It has 12 AI cards in the deck, which is more than a level 1 White Lion, but less than a level 2 White Lion. So it's probably going to be in there. So you go, okay, eight basic cards from its deck, three advanced cards from its deck, and one legendary card from its deck. No, no, no. It, it, this is a level 1. It's not supposed to have a legendary attack in its deck. Yeah, right. yeah, no. It gets a legendary attack right out the door. So that is something that can be pretty surprising when you face your first phoenix. So then you fight the phoenix, and you're expecting it to have a bird theme or maybe a fire theme because it's a phoenix, but it's actually playing off another theme that a phoenix has. It has the rebirth theme and a time theme. The phoenix doesn't age the way that we would think that it would normally age. It shifts through time. It gets older and younger. Moreover, it shifts you through time. It moves you back and forth. It kills you slowly in the past. It throws things into the future. It does all sorts of horrible stuff with time. Now, just to give you a few examples, we have the Phoenix's hit location deck, which is, again, very different from the Lion's hit location deck and very different from the Antelope's hit location deck. We've got its Glorious Head, which has the effect of causing survivors who wound it that have a time token, which is something that the Phoenix sticks on you, to rewind, which just undoes your attack. Like, you wounded it in this location. Oh, that doesn't count. But anything bad that happened to you up till then is still there. But the Phoenix doesn't care. It undoes your attack and it doesn't count anymore. So that's, that's, uh, that's awesome. Then let's see, it's feathered back. Oh, oh, displacement. So the Phoenix just moves in the middle of your attack when you wound it, and that cancels any wounds that aren't valid anymore. Unless you can follow the Phoenix, which you might be able to do if you've got enough experience, but if not, eh, you're pretty much stuck. You just miss the Phoenix. And it's glorious primary eyes. Well, this is a first strike location, which means it jumps straight to the front of your hit location's queue and is resolved first, and has a reflex that goes off every time. The reflex is the monster stares into your future and kills all your children. I I'm sorry, what? what? It kills your children? Like, what? It what? kills your children. Children. Like, you can't have children. They're just gone. This survivor can never have children. You can cancel your attack once you know that this is the hit location that comes up. It says so right on the card. So, uh, how important is that to you to have children in the future 
at any point. So there's hard decisions to be made. And then meanwhile, in its AI deck, it's got some really, truly brutal cards. The first time I faced a Phoenix, it pulled out an advanced card, which I initially thought was a legendary card because of what it does. The difference between us, which not only throws one of those nasty age counters on you and prevents you from blocking, it also does 10 damage and automatically targets your head. Now, survivors of different hit locations that cause different bad things to happen to you based on how badly you're hit there. And you can imagine the head is a pretty bad one, but on top of that, on top of that, when you actually roll for the bad thing that happens to your head, you roll at a minus two penalty. And then it's legendary attacks. It has an attack that undoes your game. I mean, not reliably, but this is this is totally one of its attacks. It just, you go back to the beginning. You go back to the start. You take the four survivors from your fight and you go, boop, we're done. Back to the beginning. They fight the white lion at the very beginning again and start a new settlement, which I guess could be a blessing in disguise, but dang, that's brutal. That is incredibly brutal, and hopefully we've impressed on you how different these fights really are. One thing that we can't actually show you, because this is an audio format, is exactly how cool these miniatures look. They are deeply terrifying and scary. The Phoenix miniature is a pain in the butt to assemble, by the way, but it has all these hands all over it. Inside the Phoenix's beak, there's this old man face with a long, flowing mustache. It has these weird claw-like human hands. The screaming antelope has this giant mouth opening up on its stomach. As we said, the white lion has these semi-human-like hands. And just the design of this game is just full of these nightmare horror elements. Hands everywhere. Faces everywhere. And, well, remember how at the beginning I said that we're going to be talking about kind of an orange zone topic? This is what we're going to be talking about right now, so I'll give you a moment to turn off the episode if you want to. And if not, a lot of the design actually involves genitalia yeah. and sexuality. Yeah, there's enormous amount of phallic and yonic imagery. I mean, even on the base miniatures, we have the white lion, which subtly has a pair of testicles and a sort of cat's sheathed penis, which, you know, isn't especially shocking. It's something you might find on any miniature anywhere. The phoenix, more notably, has a cloaca at the back of it with a set of grasping hands around it, which I found to be a little off-putting. Uh, some of the expansion miniatures, though, are where you really see examples of this. The Gorm, which is sort of a human baby, elephant, anglerfish, nightmare horror amalgamation. With arms around its mouth, grasping and dragging you into what looks to be a vagina dentata nightmare opening mouth? Yeah, that's that's a very strong vagina dentata there, and it has an enormous pair of pendulous testicles and a dog's sheathed penis beneath it. So it's a pretty upsetting and, and viscerally unattractive thing to see. I'll, ju I'll just let you know, when I was assembling that miniature, I'm going, oh, where do these pieces... Oh, oh god, this... Oh, oh jeez, oh jeez, what's happening? What's happening with this? Found the nutsack, right? I mean... <laughs> so then, then we've got the Sunstalker, which is... Oh, it's difficult to describe. It's kind of like a saggy, obese person thing with tentacles, like an octopus with, like... Arms coming back as ear? Yeah, yeah like ear arm fins. And a, a shark mouth, but not shark teeth, but like human denture teeth. Uh-huh, and uh, 
a couple of tentacular sort of protrusions from it, a pendulous sagging chest with sort of funky little nipples at the end, and most notably, a set of tentacles at the bottom, some of which terminate in toes like a human foot, some of which terminate in just tentacles, and one of which is a penis. Like, just unapologetically, that's a penis. And it's the biggest, longest one in the front, and if you look at the artwork in the books that depict baby sunstalkers, yeah, that's that's their penis. It's right there. Their looming genitalia. As a final example I want to bring out, we've got the Lion God, possibly one of the most disturbing miniatures that actually sees gameplay. The Lion God has a tail, which, if you look at it, is a penis. A very faithfully detailed penis, once you look at the end of it, which appears to have a foreskin and a few little cat barbs on it, like a cat's penis, if you'd never noticed that. It's, yeah, that's that's thoroughly unpleasant. It's fake is on a long tentacle with veins in it that resembles very much a sort of phallus with a spear point on the end, and that itself is protruding from an extremely vaginal opening with hands pulling it open that actually has at the top of it what looks like a clitoral hood. That's what it is! I mean, there it is! You can't really, uh... No two ways about that. That's a lot of hypersexual imagery in the miniatures. Now, that said, from all I've seen, from everything I can tell, there is no sexual violence in this game. There is no rape. There is no molestation. It's just the sexual imagery. And in fact, intimacy in the game is considered a good thing. It's considered actual love between the different survivors. There is no sexual violence. It's only intimacy and dark sexuality. Which is in keeping with a lot of the expected themes of nightmare horror. When we talk about nightmares, we're usually talking about one of two themes. There's either going to be themes of violence and death, or themes of uncomfortable sexuality. In a sort of Freudian view, the Thanos and the Eros, which are the different views of the id. Point being, it is a sort of sexualized horror, but there is no specifically sexual content in the game. Incidentally, there is the possibility that a survivor is going to be sterilized by a blow to the waist. There is an opportunity to uh, punch the white lion in the... Fuzzy Ding Dong. That's actually what it says. Fuzzy Groin, you knock its ding dong off. Yep, there it is. Fuzzy Ding Dong, which castrates the lion, but at no point is this depicted as a form of sexualized violence. Now, this game has received a lot of feedback, a lot of negative press, because in its first Kickstarter, it had pinup models that you could get for different characters and even some monsters in the game. They were entirely optional, but they were objectively sexualized. They were pinups. The problem with this is that pinups kind of go against the overall theme of horror. 
but not really. It It's more of a way of changing the theme, where it goes from something revolting to something pleasing, and then back again. If you watch any serious horror movie, what you'll see is moments of lucidity, where things seem to be normal and breathable, so that we can actually punctuate the horror of the movie. This is a common theme in horror, in moving between things that are acceptable, even pleasant, and then suddenly hitting you with the shocking horror imagery to drive home that point. Because if it's just unrelenting, endless horror, you become completely desensitized to it and lose any interest in the horror itself. And to some degree, I feel that's kind of the purpose of having pin-up miniatures in a nightmare horror game. When the second Kickstarter came around, they even had male pinup figures. Which, I mean, does that actually balance out the, the female pinups? I mean, the objectification of both sexes? Well, well, and that's another question. Is you can't really balance out objectification of women just by objectifying men because they are meaningfully different. The reason that we have concerns over objectification of women is because of negative depictions of women. Women depicted as weak, as fragile, as damn in distress or as sexual objects to be sought and obtained, whereas men are depicted frequently as survivors, warriors, powerful figures, Conan the Barbarian. And if you look at the old Conan-style artwork, you'll always see these themes of powerful male figures with wilting damsel-type female characters that need constant protection. I don't feel that Kingdom Death does that, though. If someone looks at Kingdom Death and feels upset by by the sexuality of it, I understand. This is a thoroughly unpleasant nightmare game, and for some people, they don't want to experience that. I like horror. I really do. And I feel that the sexualization actually adds to the overall theme of horror. But I get it. And I can't necessarily recommend this game for people who object to those themes. Kingdom Death is ultimately what it is in this sense. It's not going to change. It's not going to become something different. And there's no way to sugarcoat or gloss over this. This is part of the game. This is part of the package that you are sold with Kingdom Death. And it is sort of a take it or leave it. But in Kingdom Death's defense... I will say that at no point do I really feel like females are wilting flowers and men are these powerful warrior types. Honestly, in the Kingdom Death world, everyone's at the bottom of the same food chain and every survivor is scrapping just to live at all. So that was our mostly spoiler-free Kingdom Death monster episode. The next episode is going to go deep into the story that emerges from Kingdom Death. It's going to have full spoilers. It's going to talk about all of the nemesis monsters, and we're going to speculate a little bit about the actual world and what's going on, what's happening in this world where you're only getting little snippets of information. So join us next time for that. This has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Richard Gavin once said, Nightmare horror is an elevator to Hades. Its creators offer no upward return. They simply seduce you inside, and once the doors are shut, they cut the cable. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.